Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, Steven. This is Kristen. Um, you might remember me because we did that Jurassic Park episode of me and Omar's web series together like a million years ago. Anyway, I think it's so cool that you're doing this podcast. I am a huge Jurassic Park fan. Um, I pretty much measured the timeline of my life as being before or after the summer of 1993. <laughs> I saw the movie 13 times in the theater just that summer, and I've seen it hundreds of times since. I actually got married two years ago, and my husband and I had a dinosaur theme for our wedding. Every table was labeled with a different dinosaur. Even the escort cards were actually fossil tags that said 65 million years in the making on them. And we actually hired a guy to play the Jurassic Park theme song on the acoustic guitar for my walk down the aisle, which was a dream of mine since I was eight years old. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty big fan. Anyway, I love the podcast. Keep it up and uh, life finds a way. One, two, three, four. Filled with See Jurassic Ride. Light. See Jurassic Ride, see Jurassic Ride. 
Jurassic ride, ride, ride. See Jurassic ride, ride, ride. See Jurassic ride, ride, ride. See Jurassic ride, see Jurassic ride, see Jurassic Park. Welcome back to See Jurassic Right, a podcast about Jurassic Park and you. I'm your host, Stephen Ray Morris. Today's episode is all about the tenuous relationship between nostalgia and anticipation. Jurassic Park celebrated its 24th anniversary this year, and with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, yes, that is the new title of the formerly untitled Jurassic World sequel looming on the horizon, I wanted to not only share other people's first experiences with the franchise, that touching voicemail you heard up top was from the lovely Kristen Knox, but also dig deep in how we memorialize our favorite movie and how it shapes us as pop culture consumers when looking into the future of the franchise. Also, my father stops by to clarify our experience seeing the original film together back in 1993. But my first question, of course, was, how did you first see Jurassic Park? So when I was a kid, I totally did not grow up with, like, TV and movies and stuff. Like, I didn't have a TV in my house. Uh, My mom literally locked our TV in the attic of our garage. So I lived in the middle of nowhere. There was this creepy garage, which was already, like, gross and, like, covered in cobwebs. So, like, no one wanted to go in there. Um, So whenever I kind of watched something, like, any movies or anything it was like very much against my parents wishes and at a friend's place so I remember this one time I kind of had this kind of like kind of like casual friend there was like a few friends growing up that stayed with me over the years and then like you know when your kids like a couple of them are just they they come and go and so I happened to be at this girl's place um Ariel and her brother had put on Jurassic Park and I loved dinosaurs. Like I was like so into dinosaurs. I wanted to be a paleontologist and I just was like consumed by the dinosaur world. And I feel like I had like some sort of notion that the movie was a thing that existed and was out there, but in the way that kind of kids are, you know, kind of in tune to trailers, especially back then. Uh, So basically we were kind of just sitting around and watching the movie and I was just like, what is this? And I was like completely taken with it and also horrified. I was so scared. I was scared out of my mind because I'm a wimp when it comes to anything even remotely scary. So I was just at this friend's place and it was on and it was one of those great moments in life where I got to see this incredible movie and I just kind of happened to be there while it was on otherwise I might not have seen it until like college if my parents hadn't had if they'd had their way you know (laughs) that's a little bit of a tough question to answer because I was very young for Jurassic Park Um, I know that I had the toys and I was too young to see it in theaters and too young to really remember that. I mean, my first memories kind of go back to when I was like three or so. And um, so sometime after it was out, I know that my grandma knew I loved dinosaurs. So she picked it up on VHS uh, and secretly let me watch it, you know, because my mom was always a bit of a stickler for ratings and uh, movie content. But uh, I, I know that I fell in love with it and I was already in love with dinosaurs. 
Um, and so, you know, I'm growing up watching The Brave Little Toaster, The Land Before Time, and Jurassic Park. Uh, so it was a bit of a big jump, but it really just it fully embedded itself, and I loved the movie. I absolutely loved the movie. I don't know why, I, you know, it's such a character-driven movie, and I'm not sure why at such a young age I didn't find it boring, but, I mean, I absolutely just fell in love with the characters, even at such a young age. And I have more memories, I guess, in The Lost World, but the, at some point I had seen it so many times that I just... Even at a young age, I just felt ingrained with Jurassic Park. Um, okay, I feel like I had to be five. Um, and I, I remember, like, vaguely being in uh, our old house, and I was alone, and it was dark outside. I don't know why I was alone. I feel like I was left in front of the TV a lot, like, by myself when I was a kid. But it was just on TV, and I, from my mind, always goes back to the scene where... Um, I can't think of her name right now, or the little girl where she's screaming like he left us. That haunted me for so many years. I had so many childhood nightmares about that. Um, but yeah, I was on some channel. I was I was very small and I was just terrified. Just terrified. I think like everybody else, um, I was really, really young. Um, and at the time it was my first real exposure to not only the idea of like dinosaurs but the idea of just how awesome they could be um so i remember watching it with my mom when i was a kid and i remember going home uh and uh, having nightmares because um i had never comprehended something that large before so i had a dream that um i woke up in the middle of the night and I looked out my bedroom window and we were, um, uh, you know, on the second floor. So we were pretty high up and I look out my bedroom window and all I see is like the eye of the T-Rex. And just like, I woke up from that dream and it's like, I was, I was like five years old and it's stuck with me my whole life. Where was I when I first saw Jurassic Park? It's hard because um, I definitely watched the films as a kid but I don't have like a recall of that. Like that's not like a thing that I can remember. I I remember watching them at college, at university. Uni. Uni. All right. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend on my floor and like we used to have movie nights all the time when everyone else would go out and we would watch the Jurassic Park films a lot. Um but that's kind of like a weird thing because basically when I was like 18, 19 I was watching them for what felt like the first time yeah I mean this is the most recent thing that I can remember but it's I went to go see like an anniversary edition in the theater of one of the movies and that was my biggest like memory of like seeing the movies in the theater so I don't think I ever saw a movie in the theater I don't ever think I saw one of them in the theater Um, so I think I must have like when I was a kid, seeing seeing the first one just at home, like on home video. Like we didn't go to the movies a lot, so I don't think my parents would have ever taken me to see Jurassic Park in the movie in the movie theater. Um, so it must have been like an at home, like my parents somehow were just like rented it, and it must have been older because again, like I wouldn't have I wouldn't have seen it when I was younger because my parents would have thought it was too scary. And they just, like, weren't into taking us to see movies or seeing movies, really, in general. Um, so I either, 
Like, I don't have, like, a s- specific memory of, like, the very first time. I just, re- I know it. I would have been at home and either, either with, like, a, f- or, like, a friend's house or something, but I know I didn't, I'm, like, would have never seen it in the theater. So it was just, like, we never went and saw anything in the theater except, like, I saw Titanic, and that's kind of my only memory because <laughs> I, like, begged my parents. Um, my first memory of Jurassic Park is actually not the original. Um... I think it was Jurassic Park 3, uh, I know, um, but it's my first memory memory of it that I recall that pretty sure my parents borrowed the movie from like my uncle and that they watched it. My sister and I saw the end and then my parents were like, ah, what the heck? Like, let's have them watch it too. <laughs> so we, I remember watching that and uh, now I feel like I need to back up. That's the one where what I remember most about watching it is that the T-Rex when it like gets onto the mainland that it grabs like a doghouse, right? Uh, Am I wrong? That's the lost world, but yeah. Damn it, it's the end of the second one. <laughs> I'm horrible. So fine, it was the second one. Um, that was my first memory of it. And then honestly, I think that the first times that I watched Jurassic Park were just the reruns that are constantly on AMC and TNT. And always watching it with my dad always um just it, it's one of those ones where you sit down and or, or you're in the middle of something else and and you're like oh, oh Jurassic Park is on and it can be any time and you just end up sitting down and you've lost an hour you've lost two hours because depending on where it is and it's that was honestly probably my first memory is just always seeing the the reruns all the time and like watching that and I remember piecing it together because I was two years old when it came out or one and a half, two years old, maybe. So, (laughs) so. The voices you are hearing are from a series of guests you'll hear throughout today's episode and future episodes as well. They are Stephanie Cook, Chris Pugh, Christina Nielsen, Lauren Malisi, Heather Mason, Jess Uncle, and Simon Nathan. You'll discover where to find them at the end of the show, but for now, let's focus on one guest, Heather Mason. Writer, podcast host, activist, I met Heather Mason writing at Geek & Sundry. Her dry sense of humor belies her true tenderness writing about pop culture for sites like Hello Giggles and Amy Poehler Smart Girls. As someone who does not have a deep nostalgia for Jurassic Park, I wanted to chat with her about her role as a journalist and as a fan as well. But I also wanted to play a game. Tossing out some key bits of trivia about the original Jurassic Park, we examined what was and what could have been. Did you know that the first draft of Jurassic Park was originally from Tim and Lex's perspective? I didn't know that. That sounds really cool. I would like to see their perspective because it, it would be it would definitely feel like the childlike perspective of everything. And they probably would have a lot more wander and they would be a little less uh, cynical. <laughs> it would be cool. Um. Originally, the movie was supposed to end with, because in the, the way that yeah, in the way that Jurassic Park ends now, the T Rex comes back, kills the Raptors as they're about to attack, Grant and Ellie, uh, Lex and Tim. But originally, Grant was gonna find a crane, like there was a crane in the building, 
that like you know lifts the skeleton in place. So originally he, uh, or no, I think the crane was just like helping build the building, and so he gets in the crane. And he like grabs a raptor and then like throws the raptor into the skeleton and kills it. That was the original ending. That seems violent. I mean, that seems more violent than what actually happened. I don't know about the crane. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that I like that. Well, I mean, it's it, it's it's an interesting thing that in the franchise for Jurassic Park, there's very few moments of humans killing dinosaurs. Yeah, that's true. So you know, I think it could be a betrayal. Of that kind of ideal, having like your hero, like even though they're, even though the dinosaurs are trying to eat you, it's like a movie that's presenting dinosaurs as animals and they're just doing what they need to do to survive. So the idea of like our hero murdering these animals. Right. It seems more, it seems like it fits more when they're just animals doing what they need to survive if the T-Rex comes in than if a human has to actually do it. Also, it sounds like very traumatic. As being the human who has to kill a dinosaur, I just would not be down for that. Just like crushing this yeah, raptor. Yeah, and also a crane to me, I'm just like picturing it, yeah, like crushing it. It's like you have it. to you have to physically do that and it sounds not fun. I don't think I would enjoy that. Um so uh Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg uh met when Crichton was making ER, the television series. Oh, I know ER. Yeah. And Big fan. basically, Crichton privately promised Jurassic Park to Steven Spielberg when he first mentioned the project. Um, but here are a few other directors that were bidding for the movie. Like the studios were bidding for these directors to do originally do Jurassic Park. And that included Richard, Richard Donner, who did Superman, mm-hmm. Tim Burton. Oh, my gosh, Tim Burton. That would have been so weird. That would have been a really interesting movie. <laughs> I mean, I probably would have enjoyed it. <laughs> I like all of Tim Burton's movies, but still. Uh, and Very then, different. Yeah. And then James Cameron. Oh, James Cameron. That would have been epic. Like, epic proportions. It would have never gotten done. Never gotten finished. It would have taken 20 years longer than it was supposed to. He's like, I want to make real dinosaurs. <laughs> it's like, no. He would have been like, I'm going to make eight movies, and here's what you need to do. Give me all the money. I'll make them all at once, and I'll release them over the next 25 years. Okay, go. <laughs> Did you know that the film was... So currently the film is animatronics and CGI. But originally it was going to be anima, full-size animatronics like it is now. But that the when they went to full-size dinosaurs, it was going to be stop-motion animation. Oh. Like puppets. Would that have looked good? I don't know. They, they, do, they do a really good job with the... Like effects, I never like think about them. What I think is the idea, and I that sounds really interesting. How would that have looked? That would have been strange. Like when I think of stop motion, I don't think you can just use it. I mean, I don't know anything about stop motion, but in my opinion, I think of it and I'm like, you can't just use it for different small sections, right? I thought it was like you do everything stop motion or you don't. I mean that's probably not the case. I don't know anything. Well, I mean, about like, I mean the real the original like King Kong from the '30s was like stop motion. That's like in the old movies where it's like you can tell that it's like a little tiny puppet, but like the person's just like, like it's just a, like a rear projection of like a video. Yeah, and the person's like, uh, you know, like it would have been like that. I think that could have been funny. <laughs> Definitely not what I want, but it could have been one of those movies that they do in Mystery Science Theater 3000 <laughs> that they comment on then. Especially it's like Tim Burton stop motion. 
really cheesy. Yeah, that would have been kind of cool, actually. I think it would be very cool. Uh, the total, the final count for for dinosaur screen time in Jurassic Park is 15 minutes. So 15 minutes out of a two-hour and I think seven or eight-minute movie, there's only 15 minutes worth of actual dinosaurs on screen. And there's only six minutes of actual CGI in the movie. That seems like not enough dinosaurs for me. But I don't think I ever thought that when watching the movie. There is something like somebody I did hear recently. Somebody was like, yeah, it's so much scarier if you don't when you don't show whatever it is. Like the moment you show whatever it is, then, you know, there's there's a part of that like fear that's gone. And I feel like, you know, we like X-Files whenever they show whatever the monster is. It's like normally not that scary. <laughs> but like the, the anticipation of them showing it is pretty. The buildup is, is good. So that probably makes sense why they didn't have as many dinosaurs. I would I would want more dinosaur, but I guess they spread it out pretty well. Uh, that seems like crazy, though, because some of those scenes, like, I feel like are so long. Like with them, like I just recently like found Jurassic Park on TV and they had that one, the scene where they're in the kitchen and they're hiding, you know, the kids are in the kitchen and they're hiding from the like raptors. I think they're raptors that are looking for them. That seems like that goes on for like 10 minutes. How is that? <laughs> I'm like, how is there only 15 minutes of dinosaurs? Um, did you know that when Steven Spielberg finished filming Jurassic Park in the uh, fall of 1980. I like that you're not even reading it anymore. You're just oh, like, I, I, I know this. I know this. <laughs> no, when they finished uh, filming Jurassic Park in the summer, in the fall of 1992, he basically left to go shoot Schindler's List immediately after. So uh, George Lucas actually handled the post production of Jurassic Park. I love it. I had no idea. I'm such a fan. <laughs> I feel like George Lucas did a good job. Good job, bro. But but maybe he didn't have that much to do. Like maybe it was really like maybe it was pretty cut and dry. Like we shot this. Do you think he just did the the original, the first cut, and then Steven would come back and be like, listen, bro, you know, like director's cut. Like, never mind, do we have another shot for this? Do we have another shot for that? Well, they had an edit of the movie like within days of the finished filming. Wow. Definitely would have been different if James Cameron was directing. <laughs> Never would have happened that way. So the glass of water sitting on the dash of the Ford Explorer was made um, using a guitar string that was underneath the dash. So when it's like, yeah, that was made, that ripple effect was made using a guitar string. I always wonder how they do stuff like that. That's very interesting. I would have never thought that. But how do they even figure out that that's how that works? <laughs> Uh, well, the story goes that Michael Lantieri, uh, one of the visual effects guys, was like watching an Earth, Wind, and Fire video and got inspired by that. Seems legit. Um, Harrison Ford uh, was offered and turned down the role of Dr. Alan Grant. I I think that's a good decision on Harrison's part. I mean, I'm sure it would have been great, but now I'm just like, he's in so many movies. <laughs> he didn't need another franchise, just say it that way. Universal paid Michael Crichton $2 million for the rights to his novel before it was even published. It seems like so much money for a book that hasn't been published, but maybe that's really low now. Like, think of how much money they've made from Jurassic Park. 
that was probably like super good deal for them. Yeah, I mean over a billion dollars. But at the time, I guess two million was a lot of money. That's a lot of money for a writer, especially when you haven't published it yet. Yeah, right. He probably was like, "I'll never publish another book." Not really. He was probably already he was probably already successful then, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was already. I mean, I he like, already had he like. Didn't, he he wasn't like desperate for the money. No. <laughs> but still, that's a lot of money. I'd probably take it too. Um, B.D. Wong, who eventually came back to be in Jurassic World, mm-hmm. um, had only two minutes of screen time in Jurassic Park. He was on Law and Order. And whenever I hear his name, I'm like, I think of that that part in Rent where they're like, B.D. Wong, but I think like, B.D. Wong. That's all. <laughs> that's all I have about him. No, that's great. Um, during the scenes with the T-Rex, um, and also, I and also, uh, the scene um, with the Velociraptor when it's like eating the cow. Um, Steven Spielberg would roar and do all the dinosaur sounds to uh, help the actors react to. I want to see that footage. Oh, they have the footage okay. on, the, on the behind the scenes. Yeah, I need to watch that because that sounds great. I like it when you see, like, how are they not dying laughing then? It just makes it even better. <laughs> They're better actors than I expected. <laughs> Pre-production on Jurassic Park, the movie began before the novel was even published. Uh, Basically, they had a manuscript, and because the film was informally promised to Steven Spielberg, he had assembled a small team of people to start doing concept art and storyboards and stuff like that before the book was even published. I want to, like, how did they know that it was going to be good? I'm just like, I guess, yeah, that seems like very ambitious and very risky at the time. Like, what if this book was terrible? I guess they could just write the script however they wanted. Yeah. But still, they've paid the $2 million. I guess they just know that Michael Crichton's not going to be a terrible author. <laughs> They're like, he has good books. Is there a website that has all these? This is IMDb. Oh, okay. Uh, I was say, is this your personal well, book? Uh, well, ha- no, the first, like, the, the first handful were from um, The Making of Jurassic Park by Don Shea and Jody Duncan. Give a uh, popular credits. <laughs> oh, this is such a stupid thing. It's this is just a fun fan theory that the kid that like scoffs at um, Alan Grant in the beginning of Jurassic Park turns out to be Chris Pratt's character in Jurassic World. Oh, I like those things. I like those theories. Those are always really fun because it's kind of doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's just like a headcanon thing where you're like, I've decided this. Doesn't matter. <laughs> There was a scene that was storyboarded, and even the model was built for it. But there would have been a scene later in the film where Lex and Tim and Grant, when they're exploring the park um, after the attack, they come across a baby triceratops, and Lex rides it. Oh, my gosh. That would have been so cute. I mean, kind of weird, but (laughs) But sure. That sounds really cute. Oh, baby triceratops. When would they have time to do that? That seems very much like we're in a dire situation, but let's stop and ride this Triceratops just for fun. In the uh, in the book, that scene happens, and they and Lex names the um, Triceratops Ralph. Oh, that's such a kid moment. Like you just have one more innocent moment before your life is ruined forever. <laughs> Trivia is a fun way to mess with our nostalgia and our memory, as if in some other Berenstein Bear-esque reality, Harrison Ford played Dr. Grant and James Cameron's Jurassic Park goes heavy on the violence and just barely skims the surface of wonder. 
It's in this world that the quote-unquote hardcore geeks get to play, examining every clue and sniffing for any scrap of news or piece of information. Chris Pugh is one such person, and Jurassic Outpost is his home. Jurassic Outpost has been a constant source for my Jurassic Park geekdom since the site truly came to life around the official announcement of Jurassic World in 2013. Chris Pugh helps run the site, he contributes news and articles, and in general is a warm and passionate leader in the small but dedicated Jurassic Park community. Chris and I talked a lot about this community, and here we specifically chatted about his role in breaking news, both good and bad, and then we geeked out for a bit in regards to the lore of the franchise and mused on fan expectations versus reality. Uh, the thing I dreaded sharing was the fact that the uh, the uh, bad dinosaur, the big new dinosaur of Jurassic World was going to be a fake hybrid. And I had seen some early designs well before anyone saw anything. I mean, other people saw stuff, I'm sure, as well. But well before anything was public, like, I think it was, like, early 2014 that I saw stuff, or maybe late 2013, and I just wasn't sure about it. I'll be honest with you. I just, I was like, uh, like, you know, and I knew it was a T-Rex and a Velociraptor, and uh, I was just like, this is so cheesy. And then I also knew that the raptors were going to be, like, teamed up with humans and i'm like i just don't know about this movie and i will give the movie credit it took some ridiculous ideas and made them it made them work uh i don't think it should have worked as well as it did i mean have you read the john sales script yes i have it is wild (laughs) (laughs) it's i mean it's yeah it feels like it's like a if you tried to do James Bond with Jurassic Park, like, or like Austin Powers, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Or maybe the best thing I could say about it is it seems like a Jurassic Park comic book idea or cartoon idea that somehow became a screenplay backed by Steven Spielberg and written by John Sayles. It had some clever writing in it. It just absolutely wasn't Jurassic. It was more cabin in the woods than Jurassic Park. For sure. Just like that, that end sequence when, the the scientist somehow survives everything and he's hiding in the tree and then the pteranodons from Jurassic Park 3 that got free just land next to him right at the end of the movie and he literally says you shouldn't be here you're not supposed to be here because he's like completely elsewhere and then they eat him and then the movie ends and it's just like what the hell it's so cheesy and funny and definitely should not be a Jurassic Park movie there's a part of me that loves it um, but not as a like I don't want to see that made no but it, it is it's a good read yeah, no, it was, I mean, I enjoyed reading it and the way that they, because I was, I was actually rewatching the Lost World special features from the, from the Blu-rays and I was very struck by Steven Spielberg being like, oh yeah, when, when, when I made Jurassic Park, I intended that shot of the spray, ca- uh, the uh, Barbasol can for that to be like a hint towards the sequel, sequel if I ever made one. And he even expresses like, well, and then Michael Crichton went off and did this other thing. <laughs> I just find that so funny. I might be alone in thinking this, but I'm so glad that the Barbasol can has never been used in a sequel. Because for me, only one person, well, I mean, maybe some of Dotson's like, affiliates know about it. How the hell would they know where it is? It's a Barbasol can on an island. I, for me, it just feels too convoluted for them to go and search for the Barbasol can. If you're on the island, just take blood samples of the dinosaurs at that point. Yeah, I mean, it... In you know, for me, it sort of articulates more of a. Uh, that was a moment in the original Jurassic Park that really hinted at a larger world that we might never see, and so yeah. I think I like at the 
like in the the book that I wrote, I kind of compared it to, and this was pre-Prometheus, you know, kind of compared it to the space jockey in that sense of like, oh, here's just this weird thing that happens. And and it's shot in a way that you're like, well, this, you know, because the way the Barbasol can is buried, you're like, well, nobody's ever going to find this. So this is just going to be this curious, like, um, tangent that uh, just adds color to the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, for me, like, I guess if the Barbasol can was ever going to be included, it had to be brought back, like, immediately. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In my opinion, like, like it had to be like a follow-up directly. Like after The Lost World, like that, for as far as I was concerned, that plot line was dead. I, it just it, it would feel too too forced to bring it back and kind of unneeded because you have these islands with dinosaurs living and thriving. You know the licensing contingency did not take effect. So, you know when people with Jurassic Park three and Jurassic World they're always hoping that the Barbasol can comes back into play. And I just kind of go like, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to see it like as an Easter egg, but I don't know why it's important. Yeah, and I also really don't buy that characters would know about it, care about it, or even be able to find it. Well, I was I for for a split second and maybe we talked about this like just chatting like I for some reason had it in my head, maybe because of the picture that Colin Trevorrow tweeted that like, I mean, it might have been too dark. Like, you know, my thought would probably be too dark for the for Jurassic World. But the idea that, um, oh, my God, uh, uh, Ty Simpkins He's talking about dead Nedry. Yeah. Finding like the Jeep of like the corpse of Nedry, like in the Jeep, like they stumble across him in the jungle. Like and then, you know, maybe Ty Simpkins I... characters, uh, Gray, Zach and Gray, uh, Gray's foot, you know, hits the Barbasol can, you know, and it's just like a nod to it. But uh, I don't know if that was something that I dreamed up was hinted at or maybe my imagination just took flight when I saw the picture that. Everyone went wild with their speculation with the uh, East Dock sign. And then the fact that a Lego set had a Dilophosaurus, it made people go wild with... Um, everyone assumed that it was a cutscene with Dilophosaurus, but it was never in the script, by the way. Like, there was nothing with Dilophosaurus in the script. I was just going to say, Trevorrow confirmed that with, with you guys, right, at, at Jurassic Outpost, that there was never a scene planned for that? Yeah, like so, like the East Dock sign. You know, he basically filmed a little scene where the East Dock sign. Well, I think it was when they were fleeing from the Raptors on the road, and he filmed two different versions. One where like the East Dock sign was seen, and another where it was like that sign that said research. 
and he said he went for the research sign because it goes to show it he's like it kind of opens up this universe like oh by the way there was an old research facility on Isla Nublar from Jurassic Park that you never got to see it's like what's the story there you know there's more to be discovered there's a lot more that we don't know about and I think that, that and he said that's why he chose that sign because it opens up the world a little bit more you know now we know there's an old research facility and it gives us this place to either explore in movies our imagination or maybe video games, toys, comics. Talking to everyone about Jurassic Park and being present in the fan and critical communities during the release of Jurassic World, it got me thinking about how this podcast exists in between how we experience movies and our memories of experiencing movies. How do you celebrate your love of something from the past so deeply, yet be able to look clear-eyed into the future? My conversations with Heather, Chris, and everyone else had me returning back to this conundrum. How do we reconcile our desire to see something new and yet also accept that we want to be comforted by the things that we love? Heather and I have seen a lot of movies together, so our conversation here feels familiar in the best ways. Her insights on spoiler culture and not getting swallowed up by the hype can apply to any film or franchise, but it feels especially relevant as we witness Jurassic Park's transition into the modern blockbuster landscape as Jurassic World. I had to write a lot about Beauty and the Beast for some reason, but I don't, and I had no, I did not want to see the movie, but I was not anticipating it at all. I wasn't like, man, can't wait for Beauty and the Beast to come out. I thought like, oh, this looks cool, but I didn't, it wasn't like a Marvel movie where I'm like really anticipating it or like Star Wars or something. But I wrote a, a lot about it and then I actually was like, you know what, I'm going to go see this movie. Like, this looks good. So I think there's there's kind of like two like there's definitely that aspect of it where it ended up actually like encouraging me to go see the movie because I liked what I had seen and if I hadn't been watch had like been forced to watch something and with no expectations you end up like I enjoyed it I was like I enjoyed this movie it's cool I had a good time um, I think I try. Like, I had a lot of expectations for Wonder Woman. A lot of people—I also saw it on Friday, and everyone had—a lot of people had seen it on Thursday. So my expectations were super high. But I feel like when I'm in the theater, I just try to try to just, like, be in the moment and not think about anything else. Because it would be easy to start seeing, like, well, I saw this in the trailer, and I saw that in the trailer. And there was definitely a little bit of that. Like, I was with my friend, and we were we were commenting to each other, like, well, they didn't address this, or what's the... This seems like a giant plot hole right here. Um, but in general, I try... I try not to... I try to do, like, a blank slate, like, kind of going into the movie. And even though, like, I, I had to write something the other day about Spider-Man, and it was, like, spoilers for the movie... But in general, spoilers don't – I don't think they have to ruin the experience for you if you get spoiled on something. I think you can still – so, like, the anticipation or or seeing things in the trailer, like, I think all of that can actually – it can just – if if you – if you're able to just leave it, like, right – like, at the door when you're going in. Like, I know there's, like – and keep the excitement part, but, like, not the – expectation part like ideally that's the way to go into it is not thinking it's just kind of like I I don't think I don't think for movies that you need to you need to necessarily be thinking about like I don't think it's bad that some people just go into a movie and then leave and then are just kind of done with it I don't think that's bad I think movies are made for enjoyment and so if you 
if you go into it wanting to en- enjoy it or at least just have like a good experience and try not to be overanalyzing it, which I, maybe is hard for some people, but for me, I, I kind of, I, I'm so used to having no expectations for things that I just kind of have that mindset where I go in and I, I'm not like, well, what are they going to do about this? What are they going to? I, I can definitely do that after the movie, and be like, why didn't they do this? Why does he have an, an American accent when he's British? But, but normally, I think the expectation and the like hype stuff is just to keep you excited about it before the movie and then if you can just kind of like let that stuff go when you actually get into the theater it's a little bit easier to just and if they if it's a good movie they're doing a good job of of making you forget about everything because you're just like in the movie and you're not overthinking it and and trying to like find fault with it cuz you're just like so into the movie that you're not you're not overanalyzing. So I think that, at least for me, I don't find it hard to do that. But the the expectation and the hype stuff before, yes, like that's hard to like stay away from or to not have. It's it's hard to not raise your expectations really high and then be you could be disappointed. But it's easier to like once you're actually in the theater watching something to not be thinking about. If they do a good job, it's it's easier to not be thinking about anything else. It's in this liminal space where friends and fans find ways to adapt. My friend Christina, a writer and high school English teacher, and I discovered an unexpected connection in our conversations about Jeff Goldblum, Michael Crichton, and dinosaurs. Cinemopolis, the movie theater I originally saw Jurassic Park in when I was six, was also her local theater for a time as well. And we pondered what makes that place so special, if anything at all. I wanted to find a question or a way to talk about the fact that you know the movie theater that I saw Jurassic Park originally, but I don't oh really know how God. to get into that other than like, I mean, that was the movie I saw Jurassic Park, Lost you World. You can ask me where I saw and Jurassic, Jurassic World. Th- Is that I where saw, you saw Jurassic where World? where I saw Jurassic World, yeah. I'm, I'm honestly disappointed because I ended up seeing Jurassic World with my father which is great because, I mean, he took me to see the original. He took mm. me to see The Lost World. Yeah. I was about to go into high school, so I was too cool to see with my dad. Uh, I That was when I was uh, trying out for the tennis team at Canyon before my freshman year, and I suck at tennis, so of course I didn't make the team. But that summer was when Jurassic Park 3 came out, so I walked. I think I walked, because yeah, it was before I got my license. From Canyon? Yeah, to... I mean, it's... Cl- Close, but not that close. No, it's still like a decent 20 it's a jaunt. minute. Yeah, it's still like yeah. a t- 15, 20 minute walk. Oh, I was telling my dad this the other day. I Apparently there's like a movie theater database online and you can find an original flyer of when Cinemopolis opened in really? 1989. Hmm. The like opening weekend of like, come to Cinemopolis, like the brand new movie theater. Da, 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 you know, I'm just like trying to understand like wh- if there's anything actually special about that movie theater. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's special to me because it's the only one that I really ever went to. You know what I mean? Um, I always liked the outside. I'm glad that they've kept it this whole time. Um, just like the way it looks and it has like the tower and stuff like that. And I don't know. It's just, it was just a solid movie theater. Um, but what I mean is that I was just there like three weeks ago, I think. What was I watching? Guardians of the Galaxy 2. There it is. And uh, 
Yeah. So I went there and I hadn't been there in a while because now I live here. So whenever I'm home, it's not always. And I'm like, let's go see a movie. So I hadn't seen it in a while. I mean, honestly, this will probably just be a podcast in and of itself. Us recollecting. Just Anaheim Hills. Just Anaheim Hills. Yeah. Well, I don't because I don't know anybody else. Like, because I don't I don't talk to any of my friends from high school. anymore. Yeah. So I feel like like when you mentioned that to me. Yeah. And that was like a while after we started talking too. So I feel yeah. like that was just like, oh wow, that's like a it's, kind of a random it's connection. Kind of, it's almost obscure. You know what yeah. I mean? Because you say to someone, have you heard of your Melinda? No. And then you're like, well, then you're not going to know Anne. I'm Hills. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, that's even more obscure than that. That's, I like that. I like that theater. And I mean, they've. No, there's good vibes about it. I, I really, again, I saw the first three Jurassic. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of almost disappointed in myself that, because when I saw Jurassic World with my dad, mm-hmm. we went to like Newport seven you know we went Mm -hmm. to like um fashion we went to like one of the fashion island movie theaters to see jurassic world excuse me no i well that's what i'm saying like i'm a little like when you would have for nostalgia's sake you would have wanted to go yeah yeah i should i definitely i i regret that a little bit um but maybe for jurassic world too jurassic world fallen kingdom Directed by J.A. Bayona, it hit cinemas June 22, 2018. And it's the source for all this current hype, anticipation, and excitement. But what do we know so far? Does it challenge our regard for what came before? What's our role in this entertainment machine? And how can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I know that my love... Um, Jeff Goldblum is supposed to be in it. Um, did you say direct, wait, sorry, did you say Jurassic World 2 or Jurassic Park 2? Jurassic World 2. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, well, I was about to get really into, like, my excitement over, over Jeff Goldblum. Okay, I know he's supposed to be in it, and I, I heard that Laura Dern is supposed to be in it. Um, I don't know if that's true. Um, but I know that, I know that Jeff Goldblum is supposed to be in it. I know that, um... But isn't it supposed to come out? It's supposed to come out next year, and that is that's kind of all I know. Um, I know the most important thing about Jurassic World too, <laughs> which of course is the fact that Ian Malcolm is coming back. Obviously, it's the most important part. Do you know anything else about it? Um, probably somewhere in the recesses of my like the little drafty corners of my mind, it's probably tucked in there somewhere. I know that. The poster looks awesome as hell, and that's it. The movie is called... Hang on. Okay, so it's Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. It's really cool. (laughs) And it's so cool. It sounds like... um, Like, um... I don't know. It just sounds so much darker and so much more intense than the first one. Um, It carries so much promise in the title, and I think that's awesome. Um, and I think they're really amping up to give us something good. And the fact that they put that, you know, incredibly popular quote at the bottom, life finds a way right at the very bottom of the poster as the tagline is, they know what they're doing. <laughs> well, and Jeff Goldblum's back too, so. Oh yeah. And that. They knew what they were doing. The poster. I know that they've used Jeff's iconic line. Um, and I know they have a Spanish director. I've seen the shot of the little girl in the sort of gallery of dinosaur skeletons, but otherwise all that I know is that 
the director, can you remind me what his name is? J. Okay, I'm ready. J. Bayona. J. Bayona? J. A. Bayona. J. A. Bayona. I know that the director, J. A. Bayona, um, and also the director. We actually, know no, him? It's not, no, 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 no. Actually, what I know is. Okay, I'm really bad with names. I don't know your name. I've never met you. But um, what's the name of the director of the first Jurassic World film? Colin Trevorrow. Yes, Colin Trevorrow. I remember that he was on a podcast. I think he said that he believes the second Jurassic World film is going to be better than the first. Like he he actively went out of his way to say, I think this is going to be a better, tighter film. So for him to say that, I'm like, good. I think so too. And I, I know that it draws a lot more on the Michael Crichton novel, but they did actually say that about the first film as well. They said it draws on a lot. And it, it didn't, it didn't. Uh, what's the title of the second film? Um, Jurassic World. S- Stephen. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I sent you the poster. No, I know. But again, I have no recall. Okay, wait, I'm going to dig deep. Jurassic World. We're back, baby. Um, <laughs> Jurassic World, Lord of the Flies. Uh, Jurassic World, Electric Boogaloo. Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. It's Fallen Kingdom, isn't it? Yep. Life finds a uh, life uh, finds a way. Mostly what I know about Jurassic World 2 is what I have seen for... I wrote, like, an article about Bryce Dallas Howard's Instagram account. And it was, like, pictures she took on set that were, like, not helpful at all. It was, like, a wire on the ground. Because I just assume, like, you can't take pictures of anything. So she's trying to, like, take pictures of things without actually saying anything so I don't know anything like that's kind of my I mean I know she's in the movie I know Chris Pratt's in the movie that I really like that article because I think and we and you and I talk about this a lot about how it's just like anything else like in the in this 24-hour news cycle it's like we you we just have to write stories about anything any little morsel any little like just to keep the like I mean just to continue to have a job basically yeah and I, I like that article is like the Bryce Dallas Howard equivalent of like it's like the equivalent of what she did for Jurassic World Two. Like your article is the equivalent of what she did for Jurassic World Two. You're like, well, we don't know anything about Jurassic World Two, but here's pictures that don't tell us anything about Jurassic World Two, because in a lot of cases, a lot of articles, you know, th- like as in you know in in that in that sense, as interesting as they are, or like irreverent or silly, it's like. We're like we can't actually say anything, so we're just. But I like that it was a commentary on the fact that we can't say anything, or like your Avengers piece on the trailers. Yeah, that was like one of the I did. I wrote that down in my notes because I wrote a piece about like a picture that, like the Russo brothers posted about the Avengers set, and it's just a picture of all the trailers. And so you like, what do you write about? It's just a picture of like 50 trailers in a parking lot. But like, this is news now. They've posted this picture and it has to become 
like any any kind of like morsel of new information people are like grabbing onto it they're like i have to like okay i mean and i guess i wonder is it i wonder like where that comes from is it because the audience really wants that stuff is it because we think that stuff's cool and like for me i'm like yeah like i'm interested in like the trailers sure <laughs> i love the avengers i want to see anything that i can about the avengers i don't know any information or is it more like the like the the outlets are trying to like find things to talk about you know i i kind of just like wonder where it comes from or if it's like the chicken and the egg thing where it's just like oh well when when we write articles about jurassic world people are really interested so like we see we have better we have more clicks we have more whatever or if it's the other way around it's like people are like demanding jurassic world articles like where does it come from which i think is interesting Is the nostalgia for something like Jurassic Park different for people who saw it when it came out versus somebody who saw it, yeah, at later in life or as an adult? Do you think that the nostalgia for something like that is different? I think whenever whenever anybody has something tied to their childhood in any way, their first instinct is like, don't do this, don't remake it. Like whenever there's a, whenever they want to remake a TV show or something or or a movie that I enjoyed like The Mummy. I was really offended when they were making The Mummy with Tom Cruise. I was just like, "No. Brendan Fraser is in The Mummy." Like and Rachel Wise, like no one no. I was like, "I don't want anything else. This is what I remember of my childhood." So whenever which is just unreasonable one, but um whenever you have something tied to your childhood, you have this like you hold it in like a very special place. And so I think totally like you would have seen I mean you had like a greater like stake in Jurassic World than I did because I was just kind of like I'm gonna go see this at the theater like I hope it's good and the same thing with with Star Wars like I saw Star Wars for the first time as an adult so I definitely you know was really anticipating Star Wars big fan like wanted to go see The Force Awakens saw it like Thursday night with like a big group of people but I definitely, I can acknowledge that I didn't have the same, like, nostalgic experience that people who were, like, crying because they saw it, you know, they're like, this I saw with my grandfather for the first time in theater, you know, like, people have all these, like, emotions and moments tied to things that they remember from their childhood that when you see as an adult, it's not, you don't have the same ties to everything. You don't have the same, like, emotional connection. It's different. It's just like a different connection you have to everything. Like I still have connections to things. It's just I don't have a history of like I read Wonder Woman when I was five, and then you know now I finally I've been wanting to see a movie with her forever. It's like no, I just like superhero movies, and I wanted to see Wonder Woman. So it's like clearly I have a different. <laughs> I wanted to see a female superhero movie, and I have it so clearly I have like a different tie to this. It doesn't mean I didn't can't still like enjoy the movie in the same way. But people definitely, I like that people have those kind of like childhood like fondness for things and that they feel like that strongly about it, even if it comes across really intensely a lot. <laughs> even if it's it's possible for it to be disappointing. Yeah, because, oh yeah, like, because people will say things can ruin their childhood, you know, like with Ghostbusters and stuff, they're like ruining your childhood. I'm like, how? You still have those moments. It doesn't ruin anything. It's not taking away any of those moments. You're not going to... If Jurassic World 2 is terrible, you're not going to be like, well, 
this has ruined my entire love of Jurassic Park. I mean, at least I hope you wouldn't, <laughs> because you still have all that stuff growing up. I don't get, I don't get when people say like stuff will ruin their childhood, because to me, you still have that memory. This is just like you're, you have the opportunity for new, new people are getting new memories as when they're a child, which I think is cool. Like when I saw little kids going to see Wonder Woman or whatever, I was like, this is really cute. Like they're gonna have a memory of dressing up like Wonder. I mean, maybe they'll have memory. They'll they'll have this picture of them dressed like Wonder Woman, standing in, in front of the Wonder Woman poster, and like maybe that'll be something they have like a cherished moment from their childhood in 25 years. I do. I definitely think it's different. I think it's different experiences. I'm I'm trying to think of a specific movie. Um, it's, it's it's like I I feel like I've seen so many movies that you know came out maybe like when I was born that a lot of my like friends who were only a few years older than me like saw in theaters and I didn't that I like just watched like last year and so for like for me watching it as an adult like now like you know on like on my like TV. I'm like having a much different experience than them in the theater, like feeling that when it just came out. Um, there's, there's, there's like it's hard to explain, but there's, there's, it's two completely different experiences. Um, like, and I feel like, like for example, like The Crow is probably one of the first movies that I ever became really obsessed with and really like emotionally attached to. Um, and then one of my friends remembers 1994, I think, you know, like seeing it in theaters and like like crying after because Brandon Lee had just passed um no he passed like um like during like while the movie was being completed and um and so that would so he the crow has a whole different like emotional like just a whole different feeling for him and he actually like he's like sad he does he doesn't want to watch it when when it comes on tv um because it makes him yeah and he's like you know it makes me think of when i when i saw it in theaters it was such a sad experience and so you know i watched it you know on tv when i was maybe like in middle school and when it comes kind of comes on i'm like yeah i have the dvd and i have all this bootleg stuff and i'm obsessed but with him with him he's like no like a it makes me think about when i when i when i saw it you know when it came out and so yeah there's two very different experiences so i don't think it just has to do with like me like being a kid i think that um how you watch a movie for the first time really kind of um cements like how you feel about it for the rest of your life i mean my favorite scene in jurassic park i mean obviously it's hard to say but i i find myself leaning towards well, I mean, really, my favorite scene in Jurassic Park has nothing to do with attacking or animal. It's, I mean, it's when they see the Brachiosaurus for the first time, and I know they can't oh, necessarily beautiful. Repli- yeah, I know, and I know that you know when they tried to replicate it in Jurassic Park three, it kind of came off cartoony. But it, it, it really says something when I think a lot of people, and I think that's for a lot of people, their favorite moment is the Brachiosaurus reveal. So, you know, maybe it's something to be said about. Uh, and like you're saying, maybe acknowledging that a bit more in future movies. Yeah, and, you know, you can't replicate that exact scene, but I don't think I don't think it's fair to say that you can't replicate that wonder uh, that coincides with that. I mean, there's a thousand examples out there, but if you've ever watched a nature documentary, and you've probably seen, you know, 50, you know, not 50, but you've probably seen a dozen nature documentaries in Africa, and each one of those probably have their moments where you're just like, wow, when you see the savanna, and you see, you know, the, the, the zebra, and the lion, or the elephant, and there's, like, you know, you've got Mount Kilimanjaro in the background and you know, everything like that. Like it, it really, I think it can speak to you. Or if you've seen even like the jungle book, these are all real living animals. Sure. They talk and sing and everything. I'm talking about the new one, but just some of those visuals, like you're just, there's a certain sense of majesty to it. Just like, wow, it's beautiful. And it's awe inspiring. 
you were really enthusiastic about the opening of the movie when you see the Potosaurus, when you see the open plains and the dinosaur come into view, you really enjoyed that. And on your podcast, you talked about the actual chase with the kids. But what I recall is we're sitting next to each other and there's a moment before you ever see the dinosaur, before you see the T-Rex, they show an image, the T-Rex footprint with water in it. And you hear this enormous crashing sound of, an, of a beast putting his foot on the earth. And they don't show you the beast, but they show you the little ripple in the water. And there's like this ripple in the water. And as soon as you heard that sound and you saw the ripple in the water, you leapt out of your seat and you raced for the aisle like you wanted to leave. But then you were tortured and tormented because on the one hand, you wanted to escape the beast that was about to come on screen. You kept looking over your shoulder at the movie screen and then looking out the door to leave. And I asked you if you wanted to leave and you were like, you didn't want to leave. But you were terrified by, by the sight of that footprint and the water, just the ripple of the water. It was a little like a Steven Spielberg thing, you know? It's, it was the suggestion of what was going to be there as opposed to the actual visual of it itself. This has been episode two of See Jurassic Right. Thank you for listening. Again, the opening voicemail was by Kristen Knox. You can follow her on Instagram at Crispy Pretzel. My guests on this week's episode and future episodes were Stephanie Cook. You can follow her on Twitter at HelloCookie. Chris Pugh. You can follow him on Twitter at ChrisLikesDinos. Lauren Melisi. You can follow her on Twitter at Motel Siren. Heather Mason. You can follow her on Twitter at NerdHeather. Christina Nielsen. You can follow her on Twitter at It's the Wombat. Jess Uncle. You can follow her on Twitter at Cylon. And Simone Nathan. You can follow her on Twitter at Simone Nathan. While episode three drops one month from today, be on the lookout for a mini so dropping next Tuesday. I've received so many tender voicemails and emails that I wanted to play slash read a few for you. Also be on the lookout for future minisodes and other special segments as well. Now, to close out this episode, I have two questions for you. If you want to tweet at me, call in, or leave a voicemail before next month's show, these questions are, what genre would you classify Jurassic Park as? And what does the title Fallen Kingdom evoke for you? 65 million years of waiting Well, oh yeah Well, all right Well, oh yeah Well, all right Well, all right Now you can also interact with me and the show by following me on Twitter at Stephen Ray Morris and following SJR Pod on Twitter, See Jurassic Ride on Instagram, See Jurassic Ride on Facebook, or you can send me an email at seejurassicride at gmail.com. Not only am I looking forward to talking to people about their Jurassic Park experiences and hearing yours, but I also am going to be sharing ephemera from my childhood, and oh god, I'm going to share the fan fiction uh, on there as well, and pictures and toys and everything. It's going to be great. And I wanted to thank Caitlin Thompson and Tim Ruggery at ACAST, Molly McAleer, Heather Mason, Stephanie Cook, Sarah Iyer, and you. See Jurassic Right is an ACAST podcast. Check out the show on their mobile app. And thank you for listening. Until next time.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.